I'm Steve Vibronix, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Episode number 35. Welcome to the 35th episode of the Life in Dub podcast. I hope everyone is doing okay out there. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Life in Dub and for all the messages of support for the podcast. It's great to know it's being enjoyed. Life in Dub is the podcast that digs deep into reggae and dub history, delivering in-depth interviews with people that live their lives through music. If you want to get in touch with any questions or just want to say hi, the best way is to email me, vibronics at gmail.com. If you want to listen back to any of the previous interviews, you can find them all at lifeindub.com. They're also on Spotify and on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts and even on YouTube. I will be taking a little break from Life in Dub over the summer, but the podcast will be back again before you know it with loads more in-depth interviews from the world of reggae and dub. This week, I want to talk a bit about a new album that I've made with Indica Dubs. It's called The Highest Principles of Dub, and it's a double vinyl and digital album with 14 brand new tracks of heavyweight dub mixed for the sound system. Half by me here in the Dub Cupboard studio, and half by Indica Dubs in his own studio. I love a good dub album. It always takes me back to the heyday of dub albums when Scientist, Joe Gibbs, Mad Professor, King Tubby were putting out albums of pure dub. This one we're really pleased with, and a lot of work went into it. When you have 14 new tracks, it takes a lot of time to write, mix and master, and a pure dub album is a pretty rare sight these days, so for me, it's great to continue this fine tradition. So check it out, Indica Dubs meets Vibronics, the highest principles of dub is heading your way. This week, my guest is Adrian Sherwood, the legendary dub producer from the south of England, behind the On You label, and so many groundbreaking music projects. We talk a lot about those early days when Adrian was immersing himself in music and about what it's like to release, distribute and hustle music, as well as his work with unforgettable artists like Prince Farai and Bim Sherman. Adrian is a great guy with a unique perspective on music, so enough of me, let's get on with the interview. So Adrian Sherwood, welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Thank you, Steve. Uh, and um, just as I mentioned earlier when we were kind of setting up the interview is I ask everybody the same question at the beginning of the podcast, which is um, to name a track that's like really important, really influential, just something to kind of kickstart the whole proceedings. So um, never easy to pick one track, but I don't know if you've got an example of one that kind of springs to mind. It's hard to choose one tune because I think you, when you get involved with how my involvement with falling in love with uh, Jamaican music or reggae music um, was it started out where as a kid I, I, I kind of liked the the, the the mad records, the rude ones, the ones with funny beginnings, things like you know Skank in Bed, you know like by Scott and Lorna Bennett or Way You to the Ball by U Roy or. Um, uh, Al Capone, Prince Buster, going back to Scar days, but um, what what really I, I got off on to was all that that mad stuff like Census Taker, Rupee Edwards, or Hijacked by Joe Gibbs, where or even Lottery Spin, you know, it's a power and all those kind of just uh, what on earth's going on there? You know, the mad ones with the intros. And obviously Lee Perry was master at that, having, you know, baby noises, you know, going back to, uh, you know, people, funny boy and things like that. So my, 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 to choose one tune is very hard, but we used to, you know, we used to love, we used to love the records with a little bit of a spoken intro and then, you know, um, Boys Town Scar and things like that. And then evolving into the, records where you, you just had a little bit of a toast on it and an instrumental and that that was why where i started before i started getting into the um the, the great singers and i think the first singer that really got me was bob andy i must be honest really started moving away from the gimmicky stuff when i heard things like life and um songs like that you know by bob and uh it's neither so to say one tune. I can't honestly pick one tune. You know, Prince Buster, all Prince Buster stuff as well. Just you know, like amazing. I just the mischief and the fun and all that in those records. I miss greatly in modern music where it's all so calculated. It seems you know our own dub world. Everything's going through the motions, calculated. You know, you need those records had a charm and a 
uh, almost an innocence, naivety, or just just a sense of madness about them that I just I just uh, if I'm doing anything, my first effort is to try and put some charm into the stuff because that's what those records oozed. They were they were that's what got me. And you've been so you've been listening to reggae since whenever then by the sound of things i mean you're talking about going back quite a long time i mean you you were young i guess when you when you encountered it since i was 10 yeah which would have been 1968 it was brand new then as well it was like just the freshest thing around i guess well we had i had my mate's sister you know um jean i'd sit in her bedroom and she'd be she'd have a little box one of those little boxes that you open the top off and a pile of sevens you know and um we were also, and I was listening to, it wasn't just reggae, I, wasn't, I got more and more obsessed into reggae probably by the time I was um, 12. But as a, a 10-year-old, you know, you'd be hearing the songs. And it's funny, I, I played with Madness a few times, and it's really weird because you can see what happened. The, the ones I liked, all the ones I've mentioned, they weren't threatening, you know, they weren't like, kind of alienating any of the audience they were quite quite engaging for everybody the rude records the the um the energy and the happiness and the fun of them all and then when it started getting a bit too black for the um types of people that would perhaps uh, find that difficult um you know i can understand why you know your average you know white kid skinhead whatever you know loved reggae wouldn't really get off on the the um, you know the black awakening stuff you know um, and it, it, it's still now you look at it, it's like a kind of old people's home those lovely madness things of people who love that that period you know <laughs> I know what you mean well I get it I understand it but uh, and and it was fun you know I I personally got into the stuff you know the kind of Garvey stuff and um, a lot of people moved away from that, you know. They, 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 they that's why when you know the things like um, you know, two tone came along, they were filling a gap that had been left by the, 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 the departure of a lot of people into the more more black awareness and um, and Garvey's stuff that was uh, you know, that I, I so loved. You know, but uh, so what? What was it that kept you to when, when, like, friends and stuff started moving away and listening to other music and whatever? What what kind of kept you? What what is it about reggae that, that kind of kept you listening to it? Do you think? Well, the friends I kept were the ones that kept listening to <laughs> the ones. Anyone who was off listening to Pink Floyd or Love or any of those kind of Yes or any of that shit it was like, leave me. Sorry, you know, it's good. Whoever likes it, but. It, um, I couldn't pretend to like it. You know, I thought a lot of them pretending to like it because it did nothing for me. Um, the soul scene was great. We used to go to, I used to like, you know, I used to go to, you know, I loved all about T-Rex, Mungo, Jerry. I grew up all, I loved all that. Um, I also used to go to, to the, from High Wycombe where I went to school to soul clubs in London, Watford, uh, but particularly like the Devil's Den, and the California ballrooms in Dunstable. I saw all the great, well, lots of the great soul acts there, and I loved that. But that didn't, you know, I saw James Brown when I was 15 at the um, Rainbow in Finsbury Park. Nice. You know, that period, though, we were all still listening to the, um, you know, the, the burgeoning, brilliant stuff, come, or everything coming from Jamaica. It was just... And did you get to see any of the bands play or, or go to any dances or anything in that time? Because there were some great tours and obviously great sound systems playing. Oh, I mean... Well, Matt, here's the mad one. I went to, I think, I was with Joe Farkerson, who owned the Newlands Club in High Wycombe, who was the nearest thing I ever had to a dad, because my dad died when I was five, and Joe looked after me, really, um, and brought me into the business. And... We went, I've got to think, this has got to be 71, 72, I can't remember what year, but to the Edmonton Sundown. And there was an Ethiopian fundraiser for a famine that had happened then. Somebody could probably give me the dates better. And I clearly remember that Bob Marley and the Whalers were on the, the bill. And I think it was Nicky Thomas was headline and like a lot of the, you know, so I saw a lot of these ones. like In, in High Wycombe? Winston Green. No, this was at the Edmonton. We travelled up, and the Whalers were on stage, 
and we had to go to the back to collect some money and we were just arriving as they were finishing so i saw them on this event i've got this vague memory of like this mad day going to a fundraiser and they, they weren't top of the bill at all we got there and i'm sure it was even in the day i've got a really really weird thing on this what happened so um i'm not claiming some you know some kind of thing i just remember some weird snapshots to being very young Ken Booth, I saw, because Ken Booth was close friends with Raymond Reds, bless him, he's passed, who was the printer at Palmer. And Reds was um, childhood friends of Ken's. So I saw Ken, I went to with Ken and Reds to um, the Q Club in Parade Street when I was really, you know, 14 or something. When he had everything I owned, a hit, I went there with him. And I had jeans on, I was underage. So I was like, kind of privileged to be brought in there. I saw a lot of them, um, you know, the, the, the uh, Nicky, you know, Nicky Thomas, Owen Gray, a lot of the artists that were English based. Um, Johnny Nash, Johnny Nash opened the Newlands Club and he was friends with Joe Farkerson. What, what were these gigs like? I mean, what, 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 what are your memories of them? Well, they, they, they were great. They were fun. They were all really fun and they were entertaining. So I, I did shows when, as, a, as a young DJ when I was 13 with, um, Judge Dredd, Emperor Roscoe, um, Dave Lee Travis, um, Johnny Walker. <laughs> I did some funny shows. And sound system-wise, I, I saw some of the early ones. That, that The Scorpion Hi-Fi from Southall was one of the first ever sound systems going back to the 50s. And he was school friends with Joe. And he was also the uncle of Shara Nelson. And he said, oh, look, I've got my young niece. Can you... Um, check her out and we re- that's how I come to record Shara when she was very young and then um, she went on from there we introduced her to Greensleeves and then Massive Attack but she was the niece of um, Joe's school friend and did you do you remember what like these what going to a sound system session was like when you were young back then I, mean. I used to go to blues parties house parties in my area with my friends, you know, they were nice as parties because you'd go to the party and the beauty of it was that all age groups would be there. So you'd have your, um, you know, troubled teenager. I thought that thing was wonderful, the um, the, 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 the Steve McQueen series. It was fantastic. Did you see it? Yeah, and I was talking to Dennis Pavel. He was on the, the show recently. Wonderful. I thought it was wonderful. The whole series was great. Because it's how I remembered it, you know, the young girl sneaking out to get away from her religious mum, the troubled young kid at the dance and people kind of keeping an eye on him, not judging him too much, not hurting him, kind of watching him because they could tell he was troubled. You'd go to a you go to a house party and there'd be like, um, you know, two year olds dancing and there'd be like a 70 year old and there'd be somebody doing a granddad dance in the corner, drunk on rum. And, you know, I was very blessed to go to, you know, a lot of those when I was young. And, and as I got a bit older, I'd go to the blues parties in the town from when I was 15. But from the age of tw- um, 12, I was going to house parties. It was because of my friends. You know, I, I had black friends at school and they and their parents, they, they came to my house for stayed at mine. We ate at each other's houses. And I, I, well, I discovered what good food tastes like. So... And you talked about like DJing as well, like DJing at a really early age. So you were like DJing as a kid by the sound of things. Yeah, I started um, with my, my friend called Steve Graham. There was a, a school that had a, um, they had, we were going down to the market getting records off the, the Joe Farkas and also had a market store in High Wickham. And I remember getting, um, we bought, Steve and I bought like Hijack by Joe Gibbs a lot of the records from the 60s, because Joe had worked for Palmer, and I worked for Palmer as well from very early, very early age. The Palmer, Jeffrey, Clary, and Harry. Clary was Harry and Carly, Carl, Carl, and Jeffrey owned the Apollo Club. I went to the Apollo Club from when I was 14, got smuggled in there as well. But the, um, so I was very lucky to be amongst such great people. So I knew a lot of the elders and you know, big players, Webster Schrouder, you know, Joe Sinclair, um, the, 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 
Oh, go on and on and on. I knew a lot of the um, people who were, were starting the early Trojan with Lee Goptel and obviously the Palmer family. And I, I ended up starting the first distribution company with Joe in in uh, 75 when I was 17. So out of the building at Palmer took the idea offers and put Jetstar in 78 Craven Park Road, where I worked in my summer holidays as a kid. So I've been very blessed. I, I worked with, you know, I was amongst some great um, senior, you know, very influential people. And, um, you know, it is literally who you associate yourself with. I was, you know, amongst those people and it gave me credibility, I suppose, or, you know, a bit of protection. Uh, Chips Richards phoned Dennis Bavell when I was 19 and said, look, I've, I've got Adrian, you know, who works with, you know, who works with us. He's just made his first record. Can you can you get the studio and mix it uh, for him? That's a connection, isn't it? Yeah. So I've known Dennis since I was nineteen, and he mixed my first record. It sounds like there was no other like option for you apart from music. Then no, no. By the time I'd got the bug, which I, but you've got to say I was, I'd gone to college when I was seventeen and left after a few months. Hadn't really worked out with a girl there. I was a bit had enough, and Joe said, "Look, let's start a distribution company." So. It, it, from then on, I was uh, I started one record label after another, distribution company, many lots of different record labels, and I've been I've been very blessed. What, very what, what drew you into that kind of like distribution and because it's it's like you know it's it's a funny old business like the, the music biz when you get inside it like that. It was pioneer in those days. There wasn't a distributor, really. There was there was. Um, What's it done? Kasna had a company, Kasna who had, the, the, you know, um, Black Skin, Blue Eyed Boys, that label. He had a kind of distribution company. And there were a couple, but not specific. So we had, we had JA, Joe, Joe and Adrian, not Jamaica, JA Distribution. And um, we were concentrating, taking the, all the labels in London and distributing them all outside of London. That's how we started. And then we started the same year. Um, I was a junior director. I've got, still got the articles and memorandum for Carib Gems. I started the Croatian Rebel label, which we put out, Marijuana World Tour, and so we stayed. Joe Wish on it. Bless him, Neville, because he was my good friend. I love Neville Beckford, Joe Wish. And um, I was involved in lots of other little things. Um, I started Hit Run and 4D Rhythms. I, I just... I got out of the distribution that went wrong because they weren't giving as much percentage. They were the bigger labels mm -hmm. then we were getting squeezed for credit by the likes of the HMV chain. And at one stage we had five staff in a record shop in Harlesden and I was 19. <laughs> you know, I was 19. If you look back at like how things are done, things are done so differently now, but like back then, like, you know, long distance phone calls were expensive and it's kind of, just a different world of communication. Well, well, we used to import records, and I used to import them. Um, firstly, we imported them from Dickie Wong. Dickie Wong was Joe's brother-in-law, and he he had a company called uh, called Tit for Tat, a, a a a production company, and a club called Tit for Tat. Have you ever heard of it? No. In Jamaica. Okay. And the house band there was um, Sly. Every time I see Sly. I, I was have a chat to him about this funny period because this was pre Robbie. He he, he he was Lloyd Parks was his bass player. Mm -hmm. We the people yeah. band um, called Skin Flesh and Bones, which came out of tit for tat from Dickie Wong at the club, as, as far as I understand. And we imported some records from him. And then after I met Farai, we started direct. I started importing every month or so, um, just for a while, only for about a year, but directly from John Dredd at Cash and Carry. So I had all the um, big youth, Gregory Isaacs and uh, cry tough things I was importing. So I had quite a good little run. But if you made a mistake and got a duff record, you were stuck with like 75 or something. It's probably valuable ones now, but at the time you couldn't get rid of because too many had slipped in. And just on, on a sort of, just for me, because I've obviously been hustling records for a long time, but back then it's like, 
How how did you order records from Jamaica when it's like you know? There, you'd phone up, you'd phone up um, John. You speak to John Dredd. You'd go down the post office and you'd speak to him. He he was a postman, and he he. I never met him because I didn't go to Jamaica because after fire I was killed. I thought fuck it, I'm not. I've I've lost interest. I didn't make a a reggae record for about till for about um, three years. I did that time boom with Style Scott and Lee Perry, but. Um, we'd phone John and he'd, um, so look, we've got a new, we've got a new Solomonic release and it's just come in. I said, well, look, get me 200, you know, or, um, Gregory's got this done and this done. And How many can you get me? So boy, we've only done this many and get me them all and get me a package and ship them off. You know, we only did it, we only did it about, to be honest with you, for about a 10 month period, maybe. 10 shipments, but that we, we actually did that though for a while. But we were competing with Black Wax, you know, out of Birmingham, Keith and Brian, you know, they, they worked together, Brian Harris, and they, they were importing very, very successfully uh, through the Curry family. And um, it weren't worth it. And by that time, I'd done my first production, which I described to you. And, I, and rather than licensing tapes or importing things or getting involved in all the hassle, I could see a path for myself that I could just, hey, hang on a minute. I, if I start making these myself. You can record them over here and like do stuff here. I was selling as much, if not more, the first couple I did than the ones I was licensing. And I didn't have people torturing me on the other side. <laughs> that, they weren't really torturing me. But, you know, it's difficult dealing with people's stuff because they – they need to make money. The expectations are high. And, and by the time I realised I could get away with calling myself a producer, I just blundered my way in and started taking learning my lessons quickly. And that, how, how did those first releases do, the ones that you produced yourself and kind of put out yourself? Well, the very first one, I gave Keith Stone a white label and said, give it to John Peel because I knew Peel went in there. He did. And then I was sat, I swear to God, I was sat outside Westbourne Grove. It was one of the only places you could get late night things in London. It was an all night, late night shop there. There was areas in Wilsdon that did, we used to go to a black people shop where you could get, you know, under the count of beers or anything at four in the morning. It was great areas, bless him. And patties and everything, that was nice. But if you're over like Labrick Grove, you go to Westbourne Grove, to the supermarket there. And I sat out there in the car with Prince Farah, and we all used, everyone used to listen to John Peel. I turned the show on, and John Peel starts the show, and he says, tonight I'm going to start the show by playing you the best dub record ever made in England. <laughs> I thought, what was he going to play? And the first three tracks he played were my album. And I thought, fuck, this is, he's playing our record. And far I go, boy, blood clotting, you're up, boy, blood clotting. I was laughing at me, saying, wow, this is great, you know, kind of thing. I just sat there with far in the car, I said, I can't believe it. I said, he's playing, he's playing my record. I said, he, he, and he loves it. And he kept, and I'd been up at Rough Train, and Jeff Travis trying to get him to help me do it, you know. I mean, I was sorry, man, you know, it's not really, no, we don't really, you can't, I'm sorry, you know. We can't, you know, not really for us, you know. Anyway, the next day, I've gone in Rough Trade Shop, and my mate Steve Jameson's in there, and they're all going, they're all going bloody hell, age new record. I've gone in the back and just, oh, that record's amazing, man. Can we have, like, 300, please? That's it. When you get people like John Peel on BBC supporting it. John Peel, not just me, countless other people, uh, and the likes of Steve Barker at Radio Lancashire and other... Yeah great people that who championed uh, what we were doing. We owe them a big debt because they, they were at the time and still were still in Steve Barker's case, very important. Definitely. When John Peel played my first single, like because I had so little confidence when I started, those things are so important to kind of make you realise that you, you actually you might have a go at like a bit of a bit of a career in this. So that was that's what happened. And then and then um far right gave me a, a record said, you know here's some tunes you might you know put them out and they had all these instrumentals and to be honest they were okay some were good some were average 
and I, I, I cobbled together and gave it the name Crito Bub Encounter Chapter Two, Chapter One. Um, and we made that. We went in the studio with Tony, Crucial Tony, and Pablo and uh, Bigger Morris, and we overdubbed the tunes, added sound effects, lions roaring, and um, that did really well. So. And then I started just running sessions. And so, you, so you got rhythms from Jamaica, and then you you are overdubbing. And did you record um, Far Eye on here on those rhythms, or we recorded the first um, album he ever did? I got off Pete Weston, produced by Lloyd e. Slim, licensed it for four hundred quid. And no one wanted to release it, and I, I said no, no, because Chips wanted to do some dub album that was awful. Um, I won't even go into the men, but it was, it was awful, just boring. And then th- there was this tape. I said, this is amazing. You know, and you gave me the benefit of the doubt, and we released that. Then I met Farai. We ended up cobbling together um, the album called Message from the King, but we didn't have enough tracks to make up the album. So I went into um, one of the first times I went in the studio. I went into the studio with... Uh, Prince Farai, Flabber Holt and Fish Clark. And we recorded um, Foggy Road and The Dream. Well, no, no wonder you stayed in music forever after that, because if you go into the studio with those kind of artists making that kind of music, that's like... Um, that was the first session. Do you know those songs? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're behind me. I mean, you can see some of my records, but like they're, they're, they're behind me there. And did, did, you, did, you, did you, when you were there, did you think like, Wow, this this is something that I'm making here. Well, I wasn't making it; I was just there. I I hired the studio, I paid the studio. But as a producer, without you doing that, it, it wouldn't have happened, you know. But to be well, that's, a, to... that's one level of production. That's one production is also very much paying for it, and it's also making a decision of what what to do and what not to do. Mm-hmm. So I, and then also, in, as it goes on, the more and more active you become, it's up to you. But I did make run that session. And um, there was, it was a mad session. I, 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 I won't talk about it now, but that was a great, really great. And we did those two tunes and recorded the whole thing in like three, four, three maybe four hours top back and mixed it. And then mixed left. it everything. Yeah, yeah, straight in, straight out. I mean, on that record, Flabber Holt's playing an out-of-tune rhythm guitar. It wasn't even tuned. You can listen to it. There's a couple of touches of guitar and it's terribly out-of-tune. And it's basically Alan Fish Clark sitting a bottle some del- reverb on it. So, so it's the drums and bass. I can remember the bass line. Um, the road is so foggy. And that he'd written when we'd driven from Birmingham together in, um, in, in the worst fog I'd ever seen in my life. I drove in this little van with him from Birmingham to High Wycombe. Well, just when, I did, just when I'd just met him, he wrote that on that night. We stopped in Wycombe because we couldn't, we didn't want to go to London. It was just too crazy. What was Prince Farai like? Because obviously, you know, passed a long time ago and such an you know, amazing artist, the kind, the kind of artist you can't really imagine being around now. Anyone who knew him would tell you he was, he was, he was fun. He was a big joker. And um, he, was, he was a right character. Like having a lot. He was, I remember him as a bit. He could be a right miserable bastard. But that was a lot of that was down to because he kept thinking he was ill. And he had this real thing. I've written about this, but I, um, I don't want to go into too great a detail. But he, he, um, he would do it. He would do like Elvis Presley impersonations and standing on the table with a spliff, pissing himself and making everyone in the room laughing while he did impersonations and going and dusting people, you know, hustling weed off people. <laughs> he was a laugh. He was a good crack, you know. And he, he got on with my mum and everything, you know. She called him the honey monster. It sounded like that. Where's the honey, mummy? You know, on the TV advert. It was a good lesson. So when he got murdered, I was fucking devastated, really. Mm-hmm. And by that time, I was kind of just establishing myself on another level as a producer. And I, I didn't do any reggae for, from 83 till I put out Time Boom. And how were those records received? Obviously, so you're making um, you're making reggae in the UK. I mean, you, you're, you're working with top-notch like Jamaican artists, Flabber Hole and and uh, Prince Farai. But how, how are they received? Is it is a, is a, is, a is, is it a British thing and it's not as good or? Well, well Farai made his own records in Jamaica, so he kept, kept making them in Jamaica and giving them to Trojan or giving them to whoever. And I got on my own way and did my own thing. By now. 
we were, I wasn't like managing him. I could barely manage myself. So he was like, you know, he gave, we set him up with Virgin. He then, he then went to Trojan when Frontline got closed down. Um, I know all the ins and outs of all the shenanigans of that bullshit as well. But that's another whole story. Yeah, sure. He went on carry on doing his own productions. He did a couple of tunes for me. He did a handful of tunes for me. You know, Bedward, The Flying Preacher, Quante Jubilee, and a couple of, a few others. But um, by then I'd moved, you know, under the guise of singers and players, you know, which I created. As my idea was going to become like a reggae super group. It never quite worked out, but the singers and players with some good records. Yeah, for sure. But, but my stuff, it was really interesting because I started getting a fan base of people. I had some reggae fans um, who were really, really loved what we were doing. But I had others like Rodigan hate, hated my product. He hated Croatian Rebel. He still does to this day. Every time I see him, he's going, oh God, you're not doing another Croatian Rebel record. It's like fucking Luddite, Dave. You know, like, what's wrong with... And he just didn't like it. But in fairness to Rodigan, I have to hand it to him. At least he's... I, I much prefer that somebody really doesn't like what you do than they're indifferent towards it. Mm-hmm. I'd rather they really like it or they don't than they're indifferent. And he he's not really a big dub fan anyway. And I was into taking acid and, and mushrooms and getting stoned and tripping and listening to tripped-out dub stuff. That's what I liked. That's not really his cup of tea, and he's more, he's much more into Jamaican music. Respect to him, respect to him, because at least, at least he's not a hypocrite, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then, but and a lot of other people didn't like what I did, but then others loved it. So, and I didn't see the point making records that sounded like another person's tunes. I was always trying to, and after Fire I Was Murdered, I ventured right into another whole world that I was then actually making some good money, really doing well. It was only when I ventured back into the reggae world. It was a bit... started getting wrong again. Because <laughs> to, to, to continue that sort of legacy of dub, you say you loved all this kind of crazy psychedelic music and you like to kind of enjoy yourself as well and kind of get in the zone. Is it like, because it, it seemed like in a lot of ways that, you know, the baton was handed over from like kind of Jamaica to, to UK in terms of dub because it's like, you know, do the work you were doing throughout the eighties is like you know some some really amazing like dub music being produced, which which wasn't being made in Jamaica. You, you, you look at the market. I, I I met Tommy Boy during that period, the hip hop um, label, Tom Silverman, and Tom said to me, he said, "Look, he said, my the market we've got here is basically twelve to fourteen year old black kids." He says, and the fact that thirty five year old and older white intellectuals in London buy it. He said, great. That's what he said. Now, the market for dub, you know, albums, was really created by record labels in London, like our labels, by people like Chips Richards, who put together these, or Chris at Greensea. Those, those, those albums weren't real albums. No, the Scientist albums, they were, they were like selections of dub mixes, and they were marketed as albums separately here, weren't they? Literally, you would get all the dubs of the B-sides, put them together, give them a funny cover, give it a silly name, and then it was lapped up by a lot of um, a lot of reggae fans, you know, black, white, whatever. But it was perfect for the Smoky Bear market, students who might have been, you know, old people from like 15 to the... You know, well, in England, it got all the old heads, you know, 40-year-old Smoky Bears in Manchester... You know, who really loved their music. You know, fans of Captain Beefheart and, you know, uh, great people like Roger Eagle and all these people. You know, they were 40s, 50s. They 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 loved the, the dub. You know, maybe not my records. You know, Augustus Pablo or King Tubby or or Lee's. You know, they, because they 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 weren't having people uh, preaching at them like the. Um, Skinhead didn't like it when it got to the Rastafarian thing. It was instrumental, and it gave them a chance to just close their eyes and trip out on the meditate on the rhythms and the the um, use of effects on it. And that, to this day, is what a lot of our fans are. They're you know they like to smoke. They they are, or and it's quite political as well. Even being instrumental in my mind because it gathers all these generally like minded good people who are. Con- spiritually conscious and aware of the planet and you know all sorts of things it's i think, I think the dub arena is quite a political one to this day 
And back in that day, it galvanized a lot of people and got them together and created um, a community. And then you, you started seeing lots of um, these folk popping up at Jar Shaka gigs and other sound system gigs and Misty and Roots and other people, you know. It, it, and then and then there started being a lot a lot more, you know, Jar Tubby was an exception, but you started being a lot more white mm-hmm. sound system operators. And look at it now. Well, bef- before we move on to that sort of thing, one other in in this kind of like period of like Prince Farai and Hit and Run and whatever. Was Hit and Run was a management company. Hit Run was um, um, Bim Sherman, someone you must get asked about all the time because you made such incredible records with the guy. So how how, how did that kind of thing come about? Because that was you know I, I worked in Palmer Record Shop for a few months. Um, I was managing it after Fitzroy Sterling left to start um, Body Music. And I thought I heard the first Bim Sherman record. This is probably 75, I think. Um, and it just sounded like this voice from nowhere. It just completely touched my spirit. spirit. I, I was obsessed. Anything from that time with Bim Sherman. So I said to Farai when I had the opportunity, look, if you get a chance to record him, please do. Or tell him he's got a big fan here. And then... Joe Lloyd, I said the same thing. They both recorded a tune for me with him. And uh, my friend Joe Wush, he, he recorded a couple of great tunes with Bim. And um, eventually I got the opportunity to invite him over in, in 79. He stayed, yes, he stayed at my mother's house. Yeah, I brought, his me brought him to England. Also, Prince Hammer for the first time, and and what I'm always interested in people's. I, I was asking Earl Sixteen about it um, for the interview I did recently about kind of first impressions of like landing in the UK, coming from Jamaica as you know, young person coming to the UK in the seventies or whatever. Um, we settled. He was looked after. He arrived. Um, some things happened that first trip that were just mental, mental. It was a mad tour, mad tour. You know, I was like. 21 and i brought over style scott to drum prince hammer who was like mm-hmm. big well he was quite big in in, in like politics in jamaica Farai, who was also linked up as well because his best mate was claudie massop and um i also brought over leroy horsemouth wallace for the, his first ever visit to england as well so every time i see horsemouth he reminds me of that as well Nice. So, you know, and, and Deadly Headley, I brought Deadly Headley over. I'd, I kept trying to get like something, you know, you just want to keep going. And then, you know, that next year I hit the wall and and, the, and was virtually bankrupt, you know, on money secured against my mum's house. I was in a fucking mess after that, you know. But I did it I, and I got through it. So, um, Bim's first views of England, he, he, he loved it, he had a good time. Bim, uh, Bim was the loveliest person you've ever met. He was really, really sweet, uh, very good-looking, very kind-hearted, but a very serious man. And um, he came to England. Then he, he brought himself back to England, but he got in a little bit of trouble. And then he ended up, he got married. And then it was more an arranged thing, but then had kids. And he ended up, you know, staying in England. So... Mm-hmm. He obviously liked it. <laughs> I can't really speak about his first impression, but um, it was obviously a good one because he, he did like England and made it his home. And obviously, like, those records, you know, they're still listened to now, and they've kind of got such a life. And like, were you like, were you when you were making those records? Did you were you aware that it like what you were doing was really good? Well, the funny thing is, I didn't really do that many records with Bim. Contrary to belief, I am. I, um, Helped him set his own label up, Century. I did one record um, in 1981 across the Red Sea, mm-hmm. which had some of his productions on it, like Golden Locks. And I did some of my own recordings with him to, to make up the Across the Red Sea album, like the title track and a few others. I then had him guest on some tracks with Deadly Headley for the Deadly Headley album. And he was involved in singers and players. Mm-hmm. So he kept popping up on singers and players tracks. And eventually I made the album Miracle with him, which really was nearly a massive success. It was actually 
you know, it's, it, it was it was successful, and it must have sold fifty plus thousand. But I didn't release that either that weekend on on Mantra Beggars Banquet label, and um, you know, people associate a lot of his stuff. But I mean, a lot of his early tunes, he owned them. You know, like the classic Jamaican recordings, and I tried to just do my best with him because I was I was like he was my favourite singer. I loved him, Sherman. Yeah, me too. I, lo- I, lo- I love his voice. It's like, yeah, amazing. So just kind of, just moving forward a little bit, looking at some of the stuff that's more sort of towards the end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s, it's like, um, talking about introducing people to reggae and dub, is like, like Dub Syndicate was a very, very big thing in that period. Well, okay, Dub Syndicate was just a name I had. It was like Croatian Rebel wasn't a band. It was a, it was a, a named after a Burning Spear song and it became... It was a studio project that um, turned into a band and it was backing Far Eye and then it kind of fizzled out when um, someone went to jail and something else happened or whatever. And then we, um, so I then moved on to the singers and players name. I then switched to Dub Syndicate where I hired um, musicians and used that name. And then when Style Scott, kind of Radix got a bit to a point where he wasn't enjoying it at all. And he wanted to, we were doing gigs in the name of Dub Syndicate. So I kind of gave him the name Dub Syndicate. Mm -hmm. And then we started producing together. And those records were Stoned Immaculate, Mm -hmm. a great great album with our most successful, um, Echo Mania and I Tell Breakfast. Because things like Stoned Immaculate, I remember them being like big hits and having a, because it was just in the sort of early dance music days, I guess, as well. And it had a, it kind of brought people from loads of different backgrounds, hippies and ravers and dreads and everybody kind of, you know, seemed to have a wide appeal. Stoned Immaculate was was a big album and it was going good. You know, we, we were having a, a good success with it all. Scotty, well, you know, he, he, um, I kept saying, buy a place, buy a place, buy a place. And he bought a bit of land and then, but he was living a large, living in large racing cars on a racetrack in Jamaica, renting like nice places, thinking it would never end and whatever. And then I, I ended up going for a marriage breakup and I knew was not in good shape and I wasn't in good shape. So I said, look, I helped him start his Lion and Roots label. And then from, I think the last On You Sound dub syndicate record was 1994 of 95. And then the one since, I helped him with a bit of additional production and mixing and stuff. But then the last five or six albums since then, half a dozen or so albums, came out on his own label, as I did with Bim Sherman, set their own labels up. I never tried to contract people or have somebody. I just thought things would grow and something would become massive. And I kept thinking on you would become, instead of selling 20,000 or 30,000, we'd sell... 10 times, 20, 100 times that. That's what I kept thinking, and it it never worked out. <laughs> From the outside, it seemed like it was like a big hit, you know what I mean? Well, they were, they were successful, you know, it was successful, but I, I, I must say I put, you know, I, all the money I did from my jobs over the years, and so I did some very good big ones, I just poured the money into the label to make the label work, so. But it's funny, like, you keep, obviously something that keeps coming up is this sort of risk entrepreneur putting stuff into it and you know i guess risk really is like you know that's what puts off a lot of people getting involved in music i think and you seem to have just like gone straight like into it like 100 well, percent. my thing is probably like you I, if i if it was about making tunes for money i could have made a fortune but i i honest to god i swear to you you know um my, I, I wasn't steered by trying to oh let's make some house music because you know, the only time I did, in inverted commas, house music, I had a couple of top 20 hits, a top 10 hit, and another, a couple of that. But I couldn't sit there all day long hearing boof, 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 jing, you know, dang, 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 dang. You're like, oh, my God, it was sending me mad. So I stuck to my guns, and I, I, I saw it like, let's say, art or something. I saw I was doing something that I wanted to do that was creative and I was proud of. It wasn't governed by thinking, oh, Let's go in and how do we calculate to use the chord structures that will deliver a successful record? Um, and, and to be quite frank, I'm um, glad I didn't because I might have had success, made loads of money, but I think I'd be dead 
now. I'd have probably overindulged myself even more than I did anyway. And um, then people lose interest in you. They think you're a wanker or something. You know, like you can't. They probably do think that would be anyway. But no, I don't. I don't um, regret doing how I did. I just. It's just looking back on it with sadness, like the loss of so many of my close friends, you know, mm -hmm. um, what could have been and whatever, rather than remembering back just how brilliant those nights at like Gooseberry or those nights on this gig or those nights doing whatever, how, how great they were. And those records, because that, that's what, like, I mean, I'm obsessed with records and music and releasing music and recording it. And, like, those records in people's collections, like mine, that people pull out regularly and listen to, it's like, you know, having that as a kind of a legacy that continues and, you know, despite the ups and downs of, like, your career. Well, the one thing I have got is, I could, you know, I could do a challenge. I could say pull out those records over our catalogue. And it goes not just in the, in the reggae area, you know, reggae vocal, reggae dub, African, psychedelic, um, industrial, funk, folk music, things like Ian King, jazz with Harry Beckett. I go right across my catalogue and I'm I'm actually uh, a satisfied bloke. I feel satisfied and I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm still able to go and make good records. I'm still going until the day I, I die. So I'm not, I'm not even... Um, Looking, I'm not looking back with the regrets. The only things I feel sad about is perhaps um, things could have gone better for people. That's all. But um, what, is, what does it mean? What does it all mean? You know. I mean, and do you have any advice for people who are like starting out and doing stuff now? And you know, because it's obviously because you've got a lot of experience in producing records, but releasing music, playing music live, and kind of you know across the board in, in the music world. Just do as much as you can while you're inspired to do it. That's it. But you, you, you've you got to try and find an end game. You know, it's like, we, and at the moment, I think that's the difficulty everybody's got. There isn't really, um, you, know, you know, before it'd be a gig would be the end game. I mean, like an end result or a payday, you know, because all aspiring musicians want to do is basically be able to live off doing what they love. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not a musician. I'm I'm kind of very lucky. I lived through the time I did, because if if now I've been born now, or if I was 17, 18 now, I don't know. I'd probably be, I'd probably be like, oh, can I get on an engineering course, or, or be doing something dodgy? I don't know what I would be doing. I really don't, because uh, the only advice I can give to people is keep honing your skills on whatever you're doing. And get really good at a few things, and then bit by bit keep adding to those skills, and enjoy yourself, you know. But it, it, it's a tough one to, to support yourself now doing music. So it's almost better you get into, um, you know, two or three bows to your arrow kind of thing that you can you can do a, a few ways of um, of trying to support yourself. As simple as that, because it's, it's a tough one. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, at the moment, we talked about it earlier on before we started the interview, it's like, you know, live stuff's not happening at the moment and you're known as someone who, like, travels the world kind of playing music live and it's kind of... Um, um, and you, you've literally been all around the world playing music, that's right, isn't it? I've been very lucky, but I, that was kind of forced on me. I used to quite happily just go and mix, um, you know, our, our groups a few times a year and stay at home making records. Then as it all kind of declined, I reinvented myself um, 20 years ago, kind of, uh, doing like live DJ dub shows because um, of necessity. And I didn't want to be just doing remixes of things I didn't have my heart in for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And what, so just sort of going forward, what, what stuff are you working on at the moment? Is there anything you can tell us about that's going to be coming out and sort of new projects? Because you seem to always be busy, you know, um, releases is going to be a Horace Andy album followed by a dub accompaniment just like we did with Rainford and Heavy Rain with Lee Perry um, after that there's a new Head Charge album the first in over 10 years which is as good as anyone ever made it's absolutely beautiful we've been making that between Ghana America doing a lot of it uh, live and online and I'm very very proud of that as well I've made the first Tackhead album in 30 years, 
which again is sounding stunning with with Doug Wimbish, Keith LeBlanc, Bernard Fowler, Skip McDonald. Uh, I made the first Croatian Rebel record in in um, thirty eight years, which sounds mad. But I've got that's going to we're going to uh, culminate a new album on that with a box set of CDs and stuff. Probably in about eighteen months from now. So I've got a new album with Jeb Loy Nichols, I Tell Horns. I've made a uh, pay it all back volume eight. There's going to be quite a lot of really. <laughs> that's a lot of stuff to look forward to. Definitely. The next couple of years, kind of already, because of the lockdown, I probably like everyone else, I've been working very hard, and I've got to make them to a standard that when I come out, when when all this bullshit's, um, when we're allowed out of our cells again, uh, and I start doing gigs, I've got a battery of great uh, sonic weapons, and I've got a plan of. Um, a couple of years of excellent releases. I mean, really good. So I'm actually on using very healthy shape. And as for me, I'm going to start doing um, productions and and mixing again, probably for quite... Uh, I mean, I've been doing some very good stuff with some American acts li- lately. And I did one recently for an act that um, did a really good job for Trent Reznor, which is, again, not, not um, the reggae world, but for an artist called Halsey, and all my mates go, who's Halsey, who's Halsey? And no, people haven't heard the artist. The last tune had 560 million streams. Wow, we're, we're looking on a world now that has left us. It's no longer, oh, I'm going to press a couple of thousand vinyl and I'm happy. It's, it's We are like marginalised ourselves. So I, I firmly believe it's only a matter of time before a fresh young artist comes with all the flavours that we love from the dub arena, the reggae world, and has 500 million streams his or herself. You know, there will be a new superstar come out of all the things and all the years that uh, we've been working on the Sonic and the Vibe and whatever, and all our peers and all the elders and, uh, uh, you know, our heroes, all that flavours are going to come up into cooking up one mighty big um, golden stream. I I agree with you. You know what? I I agree with you. I think all this amazing work that we've been doing and the sort of underground or whatever, it does influence people. And I think someone's going to take that on board and make something that's going to like, that's going to, it's going to, you know, like Bob Marley, you know, whatever people are going to, just going to. It will be. And it will be something that we'll all be going, wow, it was only a matter of time we knew it. And then it might open the floodgates for a few more coming and, I hope it comes from Jamaica. I really do, because it would be great for the island again to have another here magnitude. But Well, listen, at the end of the interview, I ask everybody the same question as well, which is this uh, book of dub question. So I've got my book of dub and I write everyone's name in it. And it's just something you'd want associated with you, like your life in reggae, uh, you know, the phrase saying whatever, you know. So if I write Adrian Sherwood, what, what, what would you want me to write next to your name? deranged reggae fan who got his hands on the mixing deck that would be good perfect that's perfect that's that's the one steve it's been lovely chatting to you yeah thank you very much for your time it's like much appreciated thanks for joining me and adrian for this 35th episode of the life in dub podcast don't forget to tell people about the podcast share it around and help get these amazing life stories out to more and more people Remember, if you want to get in touch, the best way is to email me, vibronics at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you all again for the next round of Life in Dub podcast after the summer.